Welcome to A Force for Change. I'm Diane Dosis. And I'm Kata Isari. And we'll be your hosts for this podcast, which is brought to you by Praxis. We created this podcast to explore the through lines in our work to end gender-based violence, where we've been, where we are now, and where we've yet to go. The advocates, organizers, and activists we interview on the show hold pieces of our origin stories. We'll learn about the power of connection from the conversations that led to the creation of one of the first shelters for Asian Americans to the ways we've created space for survivors to connect with one another and lead our movement for social justice. On today's episode, Kata speaks with Sandra Pilgrim Lewis. Sandra has been an advocate in this movement on a national and international scale for over 40 years. Sandra talks about what it has meant to do this work at the intersections of multiple marginalized identities and shares the powerful lessons she learned from her grandmother. Sandra currently works with Uniting Three Fires Against Violence, a statewide tribal domestic violence and sexual assault coalition serving the tribes located in Michigan. She has previously worked as an executive director of dual organizations in both Michigan and Alaska, and also served as a project manager for the Michigan Division of Victim Services. This is Kata Sari, and I'm coming to you today from Seattle, Washington, the traditional homeland of the Coast Salish people, including the Duwamish, Suquamish, Stillaguamish, and Muckleshoots people. I'm delighted to be talking with Sandra Pilgrim-Lewis. Sandra, will you please tell us where you're calling in from today? Hi, I'm calling in from Northeast Michigan, and Michigan is the land of the three fires tribes, the Ottawa, Odawa, and Botawatomi. Wonderful. It's so good to have you here, Sandra. I know you have a rich history and lots of experience with advocacy uh, that I'm looking forward to exploring with you. I wonder if you could start by telling us, how did you first get involved in the work to end gender-based violence? Well, you know, I always tell people that I have a life sentence. And I, I think for me, as with many marginalized women, that this work has been a part of my life journey. And I think back being a little girl and that my say my grandmother was that woman that women would come to to talk about safety or when they had experienced violence in some way. And so that became part of my life journey from a very young, young person. But then as I journeyed through life, I experienced violence in its many forms. And so it became something that I knew was wrong and I began to work towards ending violence against women, gender-based violence in many ways. First, just as an activist, marching and speaking out and working for legislative and social change as a volunteer working in programs or they weren't even programs back then. It was just women coming together and how do we help other women? And then as programs evolved as a volunteer and then very late in my professional life, I took a professional position as an executive director in a dual program. So it's been a life journey, but in terms of a paid position, it wasn't until maybe 30 years ago. Hmm. 
Wow, that's a really rich experience. And it makes me think about the distinctions that we tend to make now in this work between the professional and non-professional folks who do your work. What, what's been your experience about that over the years, given I didn't actually realize that you had started the paid work later in your life? I was listening to something earlier, and I was listening to John Meacham talk about history and that how important understanding our history is when we approach anything that impacts us and we we have this propensity to think that we're experiencing things for the first time. And I think about that a lot in my gender-based violence work. And, and because we experience it, we think we're experiencing it for the first time. And we don't think that people who experienced it before know what we know or feel what we felt. But for marginalized women specifically, it's always been a part of our life. And so many times for, and I'm just going to use the term white women or white passing women, they don't have that as a lifelong experience. And so it is a job and there is this ability to walk away from it at five o'clock. And for us, as marginalized people, it's always there. Like I was raped for the first time when I was six years old. Mm-hmm. So it's just been always a part of my life. And so it's very different if you grew up your entire life, never having experienced it. It wasn't part of your mother's life. wasn't part of your sister's life. It wasn't part of your auntie's life. It wasn't something that you waited to happen and that you went to college and you learned about. It doesn't mean that you don't have the passion. It's just very, very different when it becomes a job for you. And even if you think you have that social justice commitment, it's just very different for women or people who it's so embedded in our DNA. When when people talk about blood memories, you know, this is something that we've carried with us all of our lives and that we're carrying for generations past and worry about generations future. So I don't know if I'm answering that for you, but it's just very different for marginalized women. And that's part of what I see when we think about the professionalizing of our work we come to it in such different ways. Well, that makes me think about also cultural trauma and the impact of gender-based violence generationally. I know as, you know, for you being a a Black and Indigenous woman, that the presence of gender-based violence historically for you and the generations that came before you is really strong. I wonder, it almost sounds like you're describing this as a calling doing this work? You know, I think about, um, I was listening to Kimber Nicoletti one time, and she talked about doing an opening uh, for her work. And she chose to do it with her granddaughter on her hip. And she said she did it that way because she was her grandmother, she was her mother, she was herself, and she was her granddaughter. And that it isn't a job, it is it is 
within our DNA, it is within our being. It really is that thing when we talk about blood memories. And when we used to say that, people were like, oh, yeah, what are they talking about? And so now scientifically, it's the thing that's embedded in our DNA. And so it's like deer knowing how to move with the seasons and all the other animals knowing when it's safe and, and where and how to go to take care of themselves. It is in our DNA. It It is a calling or it's part of knowing what we have to do. So you're right. It's a calling. It's It's not a job, though some of us have come to it as a job. I remember listening to an advocate from Pokagon tribe, and she said it's an extension of her life, that she had seen the, her mother as a victim, and she never thought about it as being a profession for her or having a job. But now she does this work. She knows that she wants to be that person who could have been there for her mother who wouldn't have gone to an office, who went, may not have gone to a support group, but understanding what safety looks like and feels like and is such a part of our life. So it is, as you say, a calling. I think mm-hmm. that's a term that people can understand better. Yeah. And and Sandra, it seems really important what you acknowledged about your grandmother making it visible for you and in the lives of your communities. And I wonder about that and, you know, if there's any stories that you can think of about how that clearly has such an impact on you as you grew up and moved, you know, through this work, both as a volunteer and as a paid staff person, because a lot of times I find that this isn't something that is brought forward in the lives of many women in particular, and even marginalized women. I do. And the one that I, I tell people that just sticks so much with me, for the very first convening of the Congress of American Indians, it was held in Denver, Colorado. And we knew for a while it was coming. And so the women knew that Unse was the one that they went to. And they thought it was so important for our indigenous leaders to hear the message that it's wrong to batter and rape Native women. So for two years, they beat it and they wove and sold their goods to buy two bus tickets. And those two bus tickets were for she and I to ride the bus from South Dakota to Denver, Colorado. And so we got on the bus and I was a little girl and we sat in the back of the bus and it was bouncy and it was stinky back there. And I thought, oh, this is so much fun. And we must have rolled, I don't know, a couple of hours. And then I said, I'm saying, I, I, I don't want to be back here anymore. I want to go to the front of the bus. And she said, we can't. And I said, why? And she said, because our faces are brown. And we didn't have the right to go to the front of the bus. And we had to ride all that way in the back of the bus. And when the bus stopped, We weren't allowed to eat in the restaurant. We had bought food with us, or if we got drinks from there, we would get it from a side window, and we'd have to eat under the trees, and we'd have to pee in the woods because we weren't allowed to use the restrooms, and we went that far. And when we got there, I sat on the floor, and I watched her stand and say, it's wrong to batter and rape Native women. But I live long enough 
to see vowel pass. And though it didn't restore all of our jurisdiction, it began to restore small pieces. And so I tell people I live long enough to see it come full circle. And though things are still not right and things are still not just, I remember every day to celebrate that we rode that bus together mm-hmm. and that we sat in the back and we ate in the woods and peed in the woods. And I was honored enough to sit there cross-legged on the floor as a little girl to hear her say those words, it's wrong to batter and rape Native women. And the women wove and beat it for two years for her to go there and raise her voice and say those words. And so that we don't, we don't get tired and we, we don't say no and we don't not keep doing the work even when it feels like, why are we even doing this and nothing is changing? Things are changing. And I came to Praxis one time and I bought my granddaughter, then I bought her little best friend, a little white girl, and we were going to Mall of America. And we got on the hotel shuttle because they were going to go to the uh, aquarium. And they got on the bus and they went to the back. And then they said, oh, we're going to come up there with you, Grammy. Can we do that? And I said, you can sit on this bus anywhere you want. And they could. And my granddaughter's best friend could be a little white girl. And as hard as things are, I, I like to share that story with people because we cannot forget to celebrate how far we've come. Well, and certainly we're all here because of women like your grandmother and others like her who took a stand and fought for justice long before there was, as you said, what was a gender-based violence movement. Well, you know, Kat, I think there was a movement. We just didn't call it a movement. That's so true. We didn't, we didn't call it a movement. We did we didn't have shelters and We weren't printing banners, but if you think about those women weaving and beating for two years to buy two bus tickets, is that not a movement? Mm -hmm. I mean, we didn't have master's degrees and we didn't have paid jobs, but my gosh, look what we were doing with nothing, Mm -hmm. with nothing. And if we didn't have them, we wouldn't be sitting here making a podcast today. That's right. How do you think we got to this place of having professionalization take over the work in some ways? Well, I think that people of power, people with money are very smart in understanding the desires of those who don't have it. I I think that they understand our fears and that they play on it. And so that when money came into play and they gave our movement a little bit of money, they understood how to separate women of color from white women, how to say that this uh, mainstream or historically funded model is so much better and show that culturally specific programs were up to par and try to make culturally specific programs be like the historically funded or mainstream programs. And if you didn't meet the standards, you weren't good enough. It made us start to compete with each other for money on a model of scarcity to, because you get a crowd together and you get them 
to be fearful. I mean, you know, it's like slavery. How do you, it's the oppression. How do you separate the oppressed into the good and the bad? And and we've fallen into that in many ways. If you look at the our funding structures and our program structures, and we become so dependent on that versus looking at how did we do it in the past? How did those women bead and weave for two years? And they didn't have any government money. And we've become so used to that. I think it's been to our detriment. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a lot of different types of experiences that you had. And I'm wondering when you think about when you did volunteer in this work or when you began to work in it um, for pay, what are some of the stories about those early experiences around advocacy? So my first paid experience was as an executive director. And I was an executive director in a community that had 2% diversity. And so that, in a lot of ways, was like really hard because people had a perception of what they thought a person of color should be. And people of color were only in that community if we bought a skill or some knowledge that other people didn't have. So I went to a program that had a operating budget of $130,000 or $350,000 a year. And by the time I, I left there and at the end of three years, I ended up going back, but I left at the end of three years. And when I left, their operating budget was over a million dollars a year. Wow. So I had done things that nobody else had been able to do. I had begun to build relationships that forced people to think about people of color in a different way. And I was able to understand the most marginalized people in that community that were being victimized in ways that no one else had ever done before. And get people at that time, we talked about cultural competency. I don't don't like that word now because it leads people to think that they've got it covered and they've learned everything. I use the term culturally honoring services because we never know it all. We're always in that learning mode. And they started to think about those those things. And that program became a model in the state of Michigan. And so that was really, really different. I'm recalling the earlier piece that we mentioned about how we've replicated many of those mainstream white male structures in our work. And you said that funding streams that guided people was an element of that. But what do you think about the important things for advocates to know about where the movement came from that would inform them to not recreate some of those practices? Well, I I think that it's important for advocates to know the history of where we started this work, how we came from, and to not buy into that model of separation, not buy into that hierarchical thing, and to understand that, you know, at Praxis, you always do that thing, center to margin, and understand that 
at some point in your life, you'll be in the center and other times you'll be in the margin. And to understand that we're all human, we're all equal. You know, there's a Lakota word, mitaku yeowasan, and I guess that's what I would want advocates to know, to remember that word, mitaku yeowasan. And it means that we're all related, we're all interconnected. And if we can do our work like that every day, seeing every survivor you encounter, every coworker you encounter, that you're interconnected, we're related, we're made by the same creator, the two-legged, the four-legged, the wing, the fin, the crawlers, we're all connected. If you can come to your work in that way and understand that empowerment and liberation are not hats you can take on and off, that I can put it on when I'm talking to you as a survivor and really putting up that hierarchical difference between us, but thinking I'm doing it. Uh, and so I'm going to do it now. If you can take that off and really go in relationship with people that way, then you're going to be a real advocate. Mm -hmm. You know, Sandra, when I hear you describe about what are the possibilities of, how, you know, how we can improve on how we engage in this work. I know that one thing I hear a lot from advocacy programs and people in this work, which I know you hear too, is where do you find the time? Where do you find to build time to build relationships? Where do you find the time to hear stories? And that always feels like there's this time poverty sense that people have. And I, I wonder what your thoughts or suggestions might be about how either around time, but or just making space for building those connections and hearing those and sharing those stories? Well, one of the things I think is how we organize our work. Uh, and somebody told me this other day, they had a 13-page form. I was like, really? What are you doing with a 13-page form? If we took the time to sit down and listen to people and really take the time to assess what is it that we really need to know. Everything you really need to know, you could fill out what you needed to do. And if there's something missing, say there's a couple of things I need to ask you that I'm required to do. Can we take time to do that after you've listened to them? It's how we organize our work. Are we organizing our work in a way it's about filling out forms and doing processes, or are we organizing our work in ways that engage with people? Where are we doing our work? I, I can remember as a director that we had a table out in the play yard. So when it was good weather, the children could be playing and you could engage in having the conversation, hearing the story, learning what you needed to learn doesn't need to be a doctor's office where you're sitting across the desk. Look at how you're organizing your work and organizing your workspace. And where are you finding the time? Because if you just find the time, if it's one day a week to sit down together with your peers and hear each other on an equal level. We used to do this thing called service planning and everybody had a voice where we could talk about things. And the only person that didn't have a vote was me as the executive director, because I felt like if I voted, then everybody felt like they had to follow what I was doing. So it's how we organize our work and how we make sure we have space to listen to each other. 
and not just like organize our work to fill out forms and check boxes. So are we doing our work in a way that we're checking boxes or are we doing our work in a way that we're engaging with people? It's about how we organize our work. You know, Katty, you always say we walk in the direction that we're looking. Are we walking in the direction that we're looking at checkbox forms or are we walking in the direction where we're making space to engage in people. I, you know, when we think back about my grandmother in the days, there was no automatic washing machine. There was no dishwasher. There was no microwave. Still, in all that work she had to do that was manual, there was always still time for women to come and she could listen to them and find healing for them. So what was the priority? Mm-hmm. How are we prioritizing our time? And how are we prioritizing and organizing our work? Yeah. And when you describe that, Sandra, I flashed to a place I worked where we were instructed that when women came to us with their children, that we should not talk to the women with their children present. So this image that you cre- you know, put in my mind of sitting in the playground while the kids are playing and you're talking to survivors, I see you shaking your head. What are, what are your thoughts about those kinds of rules? And I think they're crazy. I, I remember this is one program, like the very first program I went to, I went back and replicated that. They had the counselor's office and adjacent to it was a playroom with the see-through window. So you could still have privacy, but you were with the kids. And I know these programs that you go, especially the tribal programs, you go and there's always a pot of stew going going because you know you want to smell the food and you want to be able to engage that way and we've moved so far away from that stuff and that's how you make the connection it's not even so much about the time but to honor make a space that's honoring and comforting give that person a cup of tea or a hot chocolate and you know and Meet them as a person and not as a statistic. Mm-hmm. And having children is part of it. And let them be be in space with the children. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've often struggled with is if I would ever go to a shelter. I've as a survivor, that wasn't an option for me for a lot of reasons, but I didn't really know about shelters at the time. But when I have worked in shelters, Sometimes I wonder, would I make the choice to come here when I was fleeing some violence uh, and live with people that I don't know, albeit, you know, very loving, kind people? But I don't, you know, what is your thought about that? I know you've run shelters. and Well, one of the things I used to do uh, when I was the director and we made big changes around how we provided shelter and in some areas we did away with traditional shelter. And I would meet with people and I say, what was the worst thing about coming here? And what was the best thing? Because, you know, there's some things about shelter we can and can't change. But what was the best thing about being here? And what was the worst thing? And how can we change? And there were so many things we were able to change, like locking up people's medication. We put medication lockers in every room. And I went to Community Foundation and they gave me money to put a television and a 
DVD player in every single room. Who am I to tell you when your kids can watch TV and what they can watch? Because you know what? When you go home, you, you have to make those decisions. And who am I to force what you can watch and what you can't watch? And why should you ask me for one diaper at a time? Hey, just make an open closet and let people go get what they need. I mean, people have been control, power and control is the foundation of domestic and sexual violence. And if you come into a shelter and, and it's all power and control, why bother to come there? Just stay at home and get killed. Mm -hmm. So ask people, what's the best thing about being here? What's the worst thing? And the worst things they tell you work on changing them. Mm -hmm. If you're in relationship with people, you listen to their stories and you understand that they're the captains of their own ship. And you say, how is it that we can support you? Because when you listen to people's stories, that's what you do. And we don't have the answers for everybody. If we did, we'd all have perfect lives. And we don't. But I think often we think we do, right? Yeah, we, we do. Know, we think yeah. we have the answers for other people, but we don't have them for ourselves. So just we have to remember that. You yeah. just have to remember that. We have to remember to be in relationship with others and honor who they are. What are your thoughts about where the movement is at today? Oh, I, I think everything is cyclical. <laughs> I think that history repeats itself. But I also think that if we take the time that we learn so much from history, and I think that in many ways, many people think that they don't need to learn from the past, but but we do, but we do, and we need to learn from the future. And so I think where we are as a movement is in my native culture, the seven generations, and that we're a seventh generation that has such promise for what the next generation can be. And when you think about the direction that we're moving in this work, what's what are your hopes for where we'll go? See, I think we're going, I mean, in some ways, it seems like we're going nowhere. But in other ways, I think we're go doing amazing things. I really do. I mean, I was watching, I, think, I don't know, maybe it was Morning Joe the other morning. I don't know. And there was a trans woman who's a famous actress and she's saying all these things about what trans people should do, uh, that, they're, that, that they're here, where she said, we're here and we're not going anywhere. And I hear the governor in Florida saying, we can't have these books, we're burning books. And then we have people like, Ali Velchi with his band book club is making me read books that I didn't even know existed. And in my little non-diverse community, there's people who are wanting to learn and do different things. So I think that our movement is going forward in amazing ways. And because it is that we're seeing so much resistance resistance of people who don't want to see women valued, people of diverse backgrounds valued, 
uh, that the fear of a white heterosexual Christian universe is going away and that that's causing great fear for people. And so that's where the resistance is coming from. But when I see so many terrible things happen, never in my life have I seen such diversity in the people who are standing up and speaking out and asking for change. So I am excited that we're going to see great change. I know it feels like we're not. But you know what? I've lived through this before. And when you're young, this is the first time you've experienced it. But I've lived through it before and come through it before. And seeing people like my grandmother and those women stand up when they had nothing. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. I I think that we're going to have amazing change and that we have young people who want to see amazing change and they have tools we didn't have in the past but i just don't want people to forget upon whose shoulders they stand and not to forget to listen to all the voices Mm -hmm. one of the things i've heard a lot from folks in the field right now is how tired they are Mm -hmm. and so when i hear you speak in that way that's invigorating and energizing. But I wonder if you have a particular message for those that are feeling stretched and tired and worn out right now. Well, you know, like I'm really old (laughs) and I think that we can't forget to celebrate. And I think that when we're feeling that tired, we've forgotten to celebrate. We've forgotten to celebrate the milestones we've accomplished. We've forgotten to celebrate each other. We've forgotten to celebrate the people who've survived. We've forgotten to celebrate our allies. We've forgotten all the things that have gone right because we see so much of what's gone wrong. And we've forgotten to be, to connect with each other. And so we have to remember to grab those moments of celebration and not let them pass us by. Because if all we do is look at what hasn't happened right, we're going to stay tired. But every single day, there is an opportunity to celebrate because I find something every day and a person every day to celebrate. In the middle of of all of the hurt and the harm and the death and all of those things, there is something to celebrate. And if we can remember to do that, it'll do tons for our exhaustion. I'm 75 years old and I get up and go to work every day. And I still find something to celebrate. And that's what keeps us going. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, celebrating ourselves as well. And that's an important message. What is it? I'm curious, what is the message that you want to leave with our listeners who are advocates or working in this field? And maybe in particular, the BIPOC advocates such as yourself, who have a whole additional layer of challenges, and then maybe what you might want the white allies to hear as well. Well, I I think that as BIPOC people, if you think about all the intersections 
that we deal with. It gives us a deeper level of compassion or understanding, I guess. But it also makes our walk harder in many ways. And I would say to our white allies, don't ever tell us, oh, I understand, because there's no way that you can. But do try and better educate yourselves about what real history is and find ways to walk beside, not behind or in front, but just simply walk beside and be a part of that movement to find ways to be in relationship with. Diane, I was so moved by Sandra's stories about the importance of honoring our ancestors and finding joy in the midst of struggle. I really was too. It it made me think a lot about how we can hold space for those who have come before us and also how it is that we can create those opportunities for joy and connection that Sandra talked about. It's something we really need in all of our work and lives, so hopefully all of us will think about it. Before we go, we want to thank Sandra Pilgrim-Lewis for joining us to share her stories and to continue these conversations with us. This podcast has been hosted by Diane Dosis and Kata Isari with additional production support from Beth Gibbs with Lyft Podcasting. Patrice Anthony and Amanda Watson, along with other Praxis staff, were instrumental in creating this podcast. We'd also like to thank the U.S. Department of Justice Office on Violence Against Women for supporting this project. And thank you for listening. Be sure to follow A Force for Change on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any future episodes. If you'd like to continue the conversation or find out more about our programs, you can reach us at info at praxisinternational.org or visit our website at praxisinternational.org.